First Baptist Melbourne podcast, making disciples here and everywhere for the glory of God. Then David fled from Naoth and Ramah and went and said to Jonathan, What have I done? What is my iniquity? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? So Jonathan said to him, By no means you shall not die. Indeed, my father will do nothing, either great or small, without first telling me. And why should my father hide this thing from me? It is not so. And David took an oath again and said, Your father certainly knows that I have found favor in your eyes. And he has said, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. So Jonathan said to David, whatever you, de- whatever you yourself desire, I will do it for you. And David said to Jonathan, indeed, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit with the king to eat. But let me go, that I may hide in the field until the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked permission of me, that he might run over to Bethlehem, his city, for there's a yearly sacrifice there for all the family. If he says thus, it is well, your servant will be safe. But if he is very angry, be sure that evil is determined by him. Therefore you shall deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. Nevertheless, if there is iniquity in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? But Jonathan said, Far be it from you, for if I knew certainly that evil was determined by my father to come upon you, then would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, Who will tell me, or what if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, Come, let us go out into the field. So both of them went out into the field. Then Jonathan said to David, The Lord God of Israel is witness. When I have sounded out my father sometime tomorrow or the third day, and, and, and indeed there is good toward David, and I do not send you to tell you, may the Lord do so and much more to Jonathan. But if it pleases my father to do you evil, then I will report it to you and send you away that you may go in safety. And the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. And you shall not only show me the kindness of the Lord while I still live, that I may not die. But you shall not cut off your kindness from my house forever. No, not even, not, not when the Lord has cut off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, Let the Lord require it at the hand of David's enemies. Now Jonathan again caused David to vow, because he loved him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Then Jonathan said to David, Tomorrow is the new moon, and you will be missed because your seat will be empty. And when you have stayed three days, go down quickly and come to the place where you hid on the day of the deed, and remain by the stone Ezel. Then I will shoot three arrows to the side, as though I shot at a target. And there I will send a lad, saying, Go find the arrows. If I expressly say to the lad, Look, the arrows are on this side of you, get them and come. Then as the Lord lives, there is safety for you and no harm. But if I say thus to the young man, look, the arrows are beyond you. Go your way, for the Lord has sent you away. And as for the matter which you and I have spoken of, indeed, the Lord be between you and me forever. 
Then David hid in the field, and when the new moon had come, the king sat down to eat the feast. Now the king sat on his seat, as at other times, on the seat by the wall. And Jonathan arose, and, and Abner sat by Saul's side, but David's place was empty. Nevertheless, Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought, something has happened to him. He is unclean. Surely he is unclean. And it happened the next day, uh, the second day of the month, that David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan, his son, why has the son of Jesse not come to eat, either yesterday or today? So Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked permission of me to go to Bethlehem. And he said, please let me go, for our family has a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to be there. And now if I have found favor in your eyes, please let me get away and see my brothers. Therefore he has not come to the king's table. Then Saul's anger was aroused against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, you shall not be established, nor your kingdom. Now therefore send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. And Jonathan answered Saul, his father, and said to him, Why should he be killed? What has he done? Then Saul cast a spear at him to kill him, by which Jonathan knew that it was determined by his father to kill David. So Jonathan arose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had treated him shamefully. And so it was in the morning that Jonathan went out into the field at the time appointed with David, and a little lad was with him. Then he said to his lad, Now run, find the arrows which I shoot. As the lad ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. When the lad had come to the place where the arrow was, with Jonathan shot, Jonathan cried out after the lad and said, It is not, is not the arrow beyond you. And Jonathan cried out after the lad, Make haste, hurry, and do not delay. So Jonathan's lad gathered up the arrows and came back to his master. But the lad did not know anything. Only David and Jonathan knew of the matter. Then Jonathan gave his weapons to his lad and said to him, Go, carry them to the city. As soon as the lad had gone, David arose from the place toward the south, fell on his face to the ground, and bowed down three times. And they kissed one another, and they wept together, but David more so. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, since we have both sworn in the name of the Lord, saying, May the Lord be between you and me, and between your descendants and my descendants forever. So he arose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. My God, rescue me from my enemies, for they are in hot pursuit. I did nothing to deserve this, God. They're constantly watching, hoping to take my life. You've kept track of my every toss and turn through the sleepless nights. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. I'm thanking you, God. Out loud in the streets, you've been a safe place for me, a good place to hide. I can always count on you. If you have your Bibles today, and I hope you do, would you open them with me to the passage that was just read for us, 1 Samuel chapter 20. Uh, we have been working our way through this incredible book of 1 Samuel, and today is the beginning of our last teaching series in this book called Fugitive Faith. And uh, this series is called that because of what 
uh, what happens in our story today. After this point, David is going to spend the rest of his uh, time, and at least in this uh, book of 1 Samuel, on the run from King Saul, who is hunting him down and trying to put him to death. And so for the next uh, seven or eight weeks or so, we're going to run along with David and see what lessons we can learn out on the run. And today we're going to learn that if we are going to make it out here on the run, uh, then we're going to need to find a friend that sticks closer than a brother. Finding that friend is essential to all of us in this life, but the friend that we need to find uh, may not be the friend that we think it is. Uh, As has been our custom the last few weeks, we're going to walk through this story first, and then we'll uh, talk about how it applies to our lives today. But uh, before we do either of those, uh, let's uh, take a minute and pray and ask the Lord to to be with us. Uh, Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you, God, for your love for us. Thank you that you have loved us with a faithful covenant love. And Father, we pray today that you would open our eyes by your Spirit, to see the truth that is in your word, that you would draw us to greater faith in Christ, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the story starts in verse 1 with David running to find his friend Jonathan, and he is running from a city called Ramah. But let's remember why David was in Ramah in the first place. Uh, In the chapter right before this, in chapter 19, Uh, There are no less than four attempts that King Saul makes upon David's life. He's just overcome with jealousy of David by this point. And so uh, in chapter 19, there are a couple spears that get thrown at David. Uh, Saul sends uh, some of his hitmen to David's house to try to kill him there. But if you remember, David's wife fooled them in a a Ferris Bueller-esque way by dressing up a statue and uh, putting a little bit of goat's hair on the statue's head and making it look like David was uh, just lying sick in bed. And that gave David time to make his escape. And where David escapes to is this city called Ramah, which is the hometown of Samuel the prophet. But even there in Ramah, David is not safe because uh, Saul comes after him. He sends his servants after him. Finally, Saul comes himself. Uh, But if you recall, the the Holy Spirit of God just overpowers Saul and uh, completely stops him in his tracks from doing what he intended to do to David. And at the end of chapter 19, we find King Saul uh, lying naked on the ground all day long and all night long. Uh, This is one of the most humbling, uh, lowest moments in King Saul's life. But apparently that day and a half that uh, King Saul was more or less unconscious uh, gave David some time to make another escape. And so where does he go? He runs back to Gibeah, to Saul's hometown, to find uh, his friend and Saul's son, Jonathan. But in verse 1, as David runs up to Jonathan, he does not waste any time with formality. He doesn't say hi. He doesn't say what's up, man, or whatever they said back then. He just gets right to it. And in verse 1, he says, what have I done? What is my iniquity? What is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? Now, Jonathan does not really believe at this point that his dad is trying to kill David. And you can tell that from the way that Jonathan replies. So obviously Jonathan wasn't aware of some of the attempts on David's life that had been made in the previous chapter. 
And probably what Jonathan is thinking about is the conversation he had with his dad at the beginning of chapter 19, where his dad swore to him, took an oath to him, that he would not kill David. And you find that there in chapter 19, verse 6. Of course, we as readers of the story know that Saul did not keep that promise for very long at all, uh, that he was out to kill David. David knew that as well. But Jonathan just did not want to believe that about his father. And at the end of verse 2, he even says, why wouldn't he tell me that? Why wouldn't he tell me if he had changed his mind and if he was now coming after you? That was a pretty easy question for David to answer. He tells Jonathan in verse 3, he's not telling you because basically you're on my side. And he knows that you're in the pro-David camp. And so he's uh, making very sure that he keeps you in the dark about his real intentions. And then David plainly says what he thinks the situation is. He says, because he knows that Saul is out to kill him. In verse 3, he says, there is but a step between me and death. I don't know if Jonathan was really convinced of that by this point, uh, but at least he knows he isn't going to change David's mind. And so in verse 4, he says, well, what do you want me to do? And then in verses 5 through 7, David lays out a plan to basically feel out Saul uh, to know for sure, so that Jonathan and David can know for sure what his real intentions were towards him. And the plan involved this festival called the New Moon Festival. This was a celebration that happened every month in Israel at the first of the month. In Saul's household, it apparently lasted for three days and involved a feast. And so David wants to use that. And uh, and so he says, I'm not going to go. I'm going to leave my seat empty at the feast. And when Saul notices that and when he asks you where I am, This is what I want you to tell him. Tell him uh, that I'm basically at a family reunion back in Bethlehem. Uh, Now, it is possible that David's family had a reunion every year that corresponded with one of these new moon festivals. Uh, But, of course, it wasn't true that David was going to be there. David's already said he's going to be hiding out in the field uh, waiting for a report back from Jonathan. And so he is using deception. He is basically telling Jonathan to lie for him. Uh, But here again, we need to remember the Bible is not telling us what to do. The Bible is just reporting to us what David did. And so David says, uh, say that to him. And and then just we can base on your dad's reaction. If if he says, okay, fine, that's no problem. Well, then he doesn't want to kill me. But if he loses it, if he erupts in anger, well, then you have your answer. And so that was the plan. Verse 8, David reminds Jonathan of the covenant of friendship that they had made back in chapter 18. And then he makes a very strong statement of his innocence. He says, Jonathan, listen, if I've done something wrong, if I'm guilty, if I have sinned against your father, you don't need to take me to Saul. You can just kill me right here and right now. And of course, Jonathan knew that David hadn't done anything wrong, and he assures him, if I had even the least inkling that my dad was coming after you, I would warn you about it. In verse 11, the the scene changes as Jonathan and David go out into a field, maybe so they wouldn't risk being overheard. And Jonathan just reassures David even more. In verse 12, he takes an oath. He says, the Lord is my witness that what I'm about to say to you is true. No matter what I find out, whether it's good or bad, whether my dad wants to bless you or whether he wants to kill you, I'm not going to hide it from you. I'm going to tell you about it. And Jonathan even calls down a curse on himself if he fails to do that. 
And then listen to what Jonathan says to David in verses 14 and 15. He says, And you shall not only show me the kindness of the Lord while I still live, that I may not die, but you shall not cut off your kindness from my house forever. No, not when the Lord has cut off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. You know, this really just shows an incredible amount of faith on the part of Jonathan because basically he is trusting in what God has promised to do. Even though at this moment in time, David is a fugitive, he's an outlaw who's on the run, Jonathan believes the promise of God. Jonathan believes that one day David is going to be the king. And one day God is going to cut off every one of David's enemies. And he says, when that happens, when God cuts off all your enemies, don't cut off your faithfulness to me. Don't cut off your faithfulness to my family, even to my descendants after me. As it turns out, Jonathan would be dead by the time that David would take the throne as king. He would not have the opportunity to show that kindness to Jonathan directly. But in time, we'll come to 2 Samuel chapter 9 and read about how David did have the opportunity to show kindness to a son of Jonathan who was lame named Mephibosheth. And so this promise that David makes in verse 17 to Jonathan's family, to his descendants, is a promise that David would keep. And then in verses 18 through 23, uh, Jonathan comes up with a little secret code uh, involving archery as a way to communicate to David whether or not Saul wanted to kill him. And so he tells David to hide out in a field on the third day. He says, I'm going to go out. I'm going to shoot three arrows as, as if I'm doing some target practice. I'm going to take a little boy with me to run after the arrows and retrieve them. And if I tell the boy uh, that the arrows are on this side of him, well, then you can know that it's safe. You can come out. You can go back and serve in Saul's court. But if I say to the young man, to this boy, now the arrows are beyond you, well, then you know that you need to go beyond here, that you need to run away because Saul is indeed coming after you. And I've always loved this part of this story because when I was a kid, we would go up to my grandparents' farm in Georgia and spend a week or so there. And one of the things that we would do there is we would practice archery. We'd go out into the fields, into the cow pasture, and we would put something out a long way out in the field, maybe a paper plate or something that was a target, and we would shoot at it. And, uh, and then we had to run and fetch the arrows like this little boy did and hope that they didn't land right in the middle of a cow patty. And that was kind of gross. But, um, but my problem is I'm not a very good aim. And so if I was Jonathan, I might have hit David in the head or something in this story. But Jonathan is a little more confident in his archery abilities. And so this is the plan. And they agree upon the plan. And verse 24, they put the plan in motion. And the new moon came, David was hiding in the field, Jonathan went to the feast, Saul was sitting in his usual seat by the wall, Abner, the commander of his army, was there, all the other officials were there, but there was David's seat, and it was noticeably empty. On the first day, Saul didn't think anything of it. The text says he thought to himself, maybe he's just unclean. There are a lot of ways in the Old Testament a person could become unclean and wouldn't be able to take part in a religious festival that involved a sacrifice. And so Saul thinks that's probably what happened. But then the next day, he notices the seat is empty again, and now he knows something else is going on. And so he asks Jonathan, why has the son of Jesse not come either yesterday or today? And notice two times in this passage, he refers to David as the son of Jesse. It's almost like he doesn't want to even utter the name David from his lips. He wants to call him the son of Jesse, the son of somebody that isn't that 
important as a way to put David down. And so after Saul asked that question, Jonathan feeds him the line that David gave him to say about how he was back home at a reunion in Bethlehem. And now the moment of truth has come. How will Saul respond to this? And I don't think Jonathan was prepared for how Saul responded to that because Saul blows a gasket. And Saul has a conniption. He starts unloading on Jonathan and he says to him in verse 30, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman. Now I know that he is mad, but why does he have to bring mama into it, right? And especially when mama is his own wife. But this is what he says. And one person pointed out the irony of this. Actually, Jonathan was not the son of a perverse, rebellious woman, but he was the son of a perverse, rebellious man. And the man was King Saul who uttered those words. But Saul is furious that Jonathan would choose David over him and that Jonathan would choose David even over himself and over his own prospects to be the king. And that's what he says in verse 31. Jonathan, don't you understand? As long as a son of Jesse lives on the earth, you shall not be established nor your kingdom. Now, therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. And now Jonathan has to make a choice. Previously, he was trying to be the mediator between Saul and his friend David, but mediation is no longer an option. Who will he choose? And he chooses the Lord's anointed, the future king, his friend David. And so he says, what has he done? Why should he be killed? The same questions that David asked in verse 1. Basically the same thing that Jonathan said to Saul in the previous chapter. But at this point, Saul is not interested in conversation. He doesn't want to have a dialogue with Jonathan. In fact, the more that Jonathan talks, the angrier that Saul becomes. And it seems like Saul always has a spear pretty close at hand. And so once again, he picks up the spear. This time, he throws it at his own son. That really doesn't make a lot of sense if what he was saying is the case that he wanted David to be out of the way so that his own son could be the king and his family could remain on the throne. Then why is he trying to kill Jonathan with a spear? You know, when a person is eaten up with jealousy and with rage the way that Saul was, the actions that we take at that point usually don't make a lot of sense. They end up hurting us, and they end up hurting a lot of other people in the process. And finally, after seeing his father throwing a spear at him, Jonathan realizes his father's wicked intentions, that he was trying to kill David. And so now all that remains is for Jonathan to carry out the plan and to pass that word along to David. So the next morning, he gets up, he goes out to the field with his bow and his arrows in hand and a little lad beside him. David is there hiding out of sight by a rock in the field. And Jonathan fires the arrows and he calls out to the boy, the arrows are beyond you. And how David's heart must have sank as he heard those words and he knew what they meant, that nothing had changed. That Saul still intended to kill him and that he would now be a fugitive. And Jonathan adds to the urgency of the message by calling out to the boy, hurry, make haste, do not delay. And the boy didn't know anything that was going on. The text tells us he had most likely done this same errand for Jonathan numerous times before. And so he gets the arrows and he comes back to Jonathan and he gives him his bow and he sends him back to town. 
Now, Jonathan and David had devised this secret way of communicating in case they weren't able to have a conversation, in case perhaps Saul had sent people to trail Jonathan that day, and he wasn't able to talk to David. But after that message was communicated, Jonathan looks around. He sees that the coast is clear, and they're able to have one final conversation before they part ways from each other. This was an emotional goodbye. There was bowing that took place. There were kisses and tears involved. And of course, there are some cultural differences going on here between that culture and and our culture. Uh, About the most that uh, two guys who are friends will do in our culture today is give each other a hug. And it has to be a closed-fisted hug, you know, just a a couple of taps on the back like that. can't last even more than a a second, right? But, But that wasn't this culture. And these two friends didn't know if they would ever see each other again. Actually, they ended up only seeing each other one other time in their life. And it was emotional because of the circumstances of what was causing this. Jonathan was bearing the weight of his father trying to kill his friend and trying to kill the anointed king of Israel. And David is weeping even more, the text tells us. And he's upset for a lot of reasons, for what his future is going to look like. He's upset for Jonathan because his friendship with David has now caused him to become an enemy of his dad. And there was nothing that David could do about that. The final line of this chapter says that David arose and departed. His life on the run was just beginning. And Jonathan went back into the city. The obligations that these two men had took them in two different directions, but they were still bound together by the promises that they had made to each other, and they both trusted their futures to the Lord. And so that's the story, but what does the story mean for us? And this story is a pretty common story, a very familiar story. Uh, it shows up in, in a lot of adult uh, Bible study books. Uh, it shows up in a lot of children's Bibles. And, and the reason I think it shows up so much is that this is one of the only stories in the Bible that is about friendship. And usually that's how this story is taught. And the, the lesson will go something like this. Well, David and Jonathan were super good friends. And we need to be a super good friend to someone else, just like Jonathan was to David. And so the idea is that we all have our arms around each other. And somewhere in the background, Michael W. Smith's Friends Are Friends Forever is playing. And and it's just a, a kumbaya moment. But is that what this story is primarily about? Is this story mainly about friendship? Here's the case that I want to make to you. I believe that this story is primarily about discipleship and secondarily about friendship. Now, certainly there are some things to learn about godly friendships in this story, and we'll come back to that. But this story is not mainly about our friendships with each other. It is mainly about our relationship with the Lord and how we follow the Lord as his disciple. Here's the way that author Tim Chester put it. He said, Jonathan is not just or even primarily teaching us how to be a good friend. He is teaching us how to be a real follower. And you say, well, where where do you see that? How do you get that from this story? I think there's a couple things we need to keep in mind in order to see that in this story. And, And the first is what we talked about last week. We need to remember who David was. That David was the anointed one. He was the future king that God had chosen to reign over his people. And because he was the anointed one, he is a picture to us of the ultimate anointed one. 
the ultimate Messiah, the ultimate King Jesus. And because of that, the way that people respond to David in this story, as we said last week, it gives us a picture of the way that we today can respond to Jesus Christ. And now, Jonathan certainly has chosen to respond to the anointed one by accepting his reign, by accepting his kingship. And the question for us is, will we do that? Will we accept our anointed one? Will we accept his reign in our lives? Another thing that we can't miss in this story is the overwhelming focus in this text about the covenant, the promise that was between these two men. The word covenant shows up once in this text, in verse 8, where David reminds Jonathan of that covenant they made back in chapter 18. But even though the word covenant only shows up one time in this text, language of the covenant, language of promises and oaths is all the way throughout this chapter. They call on the Lord to be a witness to the oath that they were making between themselves. And at the end of this chapter, Jonathan refers to their covenant, to the oath between them, as the reason why there is peace in their relationship. Clearly, Jonathan had made a covenant with the anointed king. But here's the thing that we need to remember as believers. Our ultimate anointed king, Christ Jesus, has made a covenant with us. And every time we take the Lord's Supper, we remember that. And every time we take the Lord's Supper, we quote those words of Jesus that he said when he held up that cup in the upper room with his 12 disciples, and he said this, For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. And so as we read this story about this covenant that existed between these two men, we need to be thinking about the covenant that we have with our anointed King Jesus. And this is not a covenant that we have initiated. This is a covenant that God has initiated with us. This is a new covenant in his blood. It's a covenant that is made possible because of what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. When he died for my sin. And he died for your sin. And he rose again on the third day. Because Jesus did all of that for us, God invites us into a covenant relationship with himself by faith in our anointed king, Jesus Christ. And for those of us who are already a part of that unbreakable covenant with God through Christ, there is a lot that we can learn from this story about how we follow our king. First off, because God's covenant faithful love is available to us through our anointed king, number one, we should run to him when we are in danger. You know, when you think about it, it's, it's pretty remarkable in this story that when David is in danger, when he's on the run from King Saul, that the person that he runs to is the son of Saul. Right? That the person that he runs to is the son of the man who is trying to kill him. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense except for the fact that these two men had already made a covenant. And that's what David appeals to in verse 8. Look at that verse again. He said, Therefore, Jonathan, you shall deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But the word kindly that he uses there is the Hebrew word hesed 
which is one of the most important words in all of the Bible. It's used 250 times in the Old Testament. And usually it's used to refer to the covenant, faithful love that God has with his own people. It's translated a lot of different ways in the Bible. Sometimes you'll see it as loving kindness, or just as love, or as tender mercies, or as steadfast love. But, but it's a description of the faithful covenant love that God has with us. And so David is saying, listen, Jonathan, because we have entered into a covenant, I'm expecting that you're going to show hesed to me. That you're going to show covenant, loyal, faithful love to me. And so where does David run to when he's in trouble? He runs to the one person who has made a covenant with him. But as one person pointed out, this isn't in the Bible just to give us a description of what David did. This is in the Bible to tell us what we should do. That when we are in danger, where do we run, run to? We run to the one person who has made a covenant with us. We run to the one person who has promised already to always show us faithful, covenant, loyal love, and mercy and grace. And spiritually speaking, of course, we are all in danger. And we are all in danger because of our sin against God. Because what we deserve from God is judgment on our sin. And so where can we turn? Well, we can turn to God. Because he tells us that if we turn to him and we put our faith in the king, that instead of receiving judgment upon our sins, which we deserve, we amazingly get to receive hesed. We get to receive his mercy and his grace and his faithful love in our life. And so we all need to turn to him, the one who has invited us into that covenant with himself. And of course, even for Christians, this is, this is also true. There are times in our walk with Christ, where we're in danger, where we feel that we are uncertain of what the future holds, and where do we run to? We run to the Lord. We take it to the Lord in prayer, as we sang earlier. We run to the one who has made a covenant with us through his son, Jesus Christ. We run to the one where we will find help in time of need. We run to the one who is our strong tower. We run to the one where we can find answers on how to move forward by faith. And so that's first off. Because of God's covenant, faithful love, and it's available to us through his anointed king, we should run to him when we're in danger. But also, number two, we should live for his kingdom and not for our own. Now, when Saul blew up on Jonathan at the feast that day, and the reason that Saul did that was because he thought that Jonathan was being stupid. That Jonathan was essentially throwing away his kingdom, throwing away his chance to reign as king. And that's why he says to him in verse 31, Jonathan, don't you get it? As long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, you shall not be established, nor your kingdom. And so in Saul's opinion, what Jonathan should have been thinking about is you and your kingdom. But Jonathan had already decided that he was not going to live for himself or his kingdom. But he was going to live for the anointed king. And that's why back in chapter 18, when they made that covenant together for the very first time, we talked about this last week, how Jonathan stripped off his royal robes. He stripped off his belt. He took out his sword. He gave all of it to David. And it was more than just a gift. It was more than just an act of kindness. It was Jonathan acknowledging you are the king. 
You are the chosen one and I am not. God has chosen you to reign over his people. And he was not upset about that. He was not jealous about that. He was glad about that because he knew that David was God's choice. And so for Jonathan, it wasn't about him. And it wasn't about his kingdom. It was about God. It was about God's kingdom. To put that in New Testament terms, remember what Jesus said to us in Matthew 6. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. You know, technically what Saul said to Jonathan was true. He said, you can't be king as long as David is still alive. And you know, that's actually true for us as well, because the son of David, Jesus Christ, is alive. And because he will always be alive, we can never be king. Right? Because that seat is already occupied. Right? There is someone sitting in it who will always be sitting in it. And so we cannot be king. And so the question is, are we willing to acknowledge that? Are we willing to accept that and to bow our knee to King Jesus or not? Do we know what Jonathan knew? Do we know this? That life isn't about getting to be the king. It's about being friends with him. Life isn't about us getting to be the king. It's about being friends with the king. And isn't it amazing that we get to be friends with the king? Isn't it amazing that Jesus said in John 15, I have called you friends. Think about that. That we who are wretched sinners get to be friends of God. We get to be friends with the holy, perfect, righteous God because of what Jesus Christ, his son, our king, has done for us for us. And in order to be his friend, we have to be willing to do what Jonathan did. We have to be willing to take off the robes, take off the sword, and lay it down. And when we do that, when we bow our knee to our true king, how freeing it is. Because we no longer need to live for our kingdom. We no longer need to live for our ambitions and our goals and to make our mark on the world so everybody remembers our name. But no, now we are living for a different king. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. That's what Jonathan did. It's what God calls us to do as well. Here's a third takeaway that we need to come to terms with. We must accept that following him, following our anointed king, will make us an enemy of the world. I said earlier that after Saul's reaction at the feast, Dave, uh, Jonathan had a choice to make. Right? Am I going to choose my father? Am I going to choose my friend? And Jonathan chose his friend. He chose the anointed king of Israel, the future king. And when he made that choice to stand up for David, what happened next? A spear went whizzing over the top of his head. In other words, now Saul was going to treat Jonathan the same way that he treated David. But you know that's the same thing that's happening today to Christians all over the world? That once we choose to identify with the son of David, Jesus Christ, we're going to find some spears whizzing over our head. And isn't that what Jesus told us to expect? In John 15, he said this, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you're not of the world, because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And so if you are here and you are contemplating following Jesus as king, 
I just want to share with you, just to be faithful to the word of God, that you need to consider and count the cost of that. And if you're going to follow Jesus as king, the road will not be easy. There will be modern day Saul's who will be lobbing spears at your head because if they persecuted him, they will persecute you and me. And are you, am I, willing to do that? Are we willing to take up whatever cross Jesus calls us to take up in order to be faithful to him? And if we're not, then according to Jesus, he said, you cannot be my disciple. Here's a fourth and final takeaway. Because God's covenant faithful love is available to us through his anointed king, we can go in peace even if our lives are anything but peaceful. You know, the last thing that Jonathan said to David in that emotional goodbye in that field is recorded there in verse 42. And he said to him, go in peace. Now that seems like a pretty silly thing to say to someone who is on the run from a crazy king who is trying to kill him. I mean, go in peace? What peace? What peace was David about to have for the next period of time in his life? And yet, why does Jonathan say that David can go in peace? Look at verse 42. He says, Go in peace, since we have both sworn in the name of the Lord, saying, May the Lord be between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. In other words, Jonathan said, David, you can go in peace because there is peace between you and me. Because we have entered into a covenant with each other. And as one person said, in all of the uncertainty that was going on in the lives of these two men, at least they had that one anchor point to look to. That there was peace between the two of them because they had made a covenant that they would not break. And that gives us such a clear picture of the peace that God offers us in Christ. Before Jesus comes into our life, we don't have peace. We don't have peace with God. Maybe you know what that feels. We don't have peace with God. We don't have peace with anybody else the way that he intends. But once Jesus comes into our life, he reconciles us to God. We have peace with God for the first time in our life. And it's actually possible, the Bible says, as much as it depends on us to be at peace with everyone else. Now that doesn't mean that everyone else is going to be at peace with us. We just said that. There will be some who will persecute us. But even in the midst of that, even when, like David, our lives don't seem very peaceful, maybe you can relate to that right now. Maybe your life seems not like a calm, glassy sea, but it's more like a storm. We have this promise from Jesus. He said, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. You know, I titled this message, Find a Friend That Sticks Closer Than a Brother. And that comes from this really familiar proverb, Proverb 18.24, that says, A man who has friends must himself be friendly, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Now, ultimately, of course, the friend that sticks closer than any other, the friend that we need more than any other, is Jesus. He's the only friend who is always faithful, who is always loyal, who is always loving, the only friend who has died to pay for our sins. But with that said, I, I talked earlier about how this story of David and Jonathan is primarily about discipleship, but 
secondarily about friendship. And I do believe that while it isn't the main point of this story, that the friendship between Jonathan and David does give us a wonderful example of what godly friendship should look like. And you know, in our culture, we have demeaned really even the word friend and the meaning of friendship. Our friends in our culture now are our Facebook friends and Many of us have hundreds or even thousands of such friends. Our friends are our Twitter followers. Our friends are the ones who sub- subscribe to our YouTube channel. Now, some of them may be our real friends, but many of them certainly are not. A real friend is the kind of friend that Jonathan and David were to each other. In their friendship, you see all of the things that the Bible talks about when it talks about friendship. You see faithfulness. You see sacrifice. You see selflessness. You see two men spurring each other on even in the middle of the battle. And you know what? We all need some friends like that. And here's the truth. Talking about friendship really isn't a lot different than what we've been talking about all morning. Because we've been talking about our friendship with God and how God is a loyal, faithful friend to us. But here's the truth I want us to see. The best friend that we can have is a godly friend, is someone who is a visible expression of God's covenant, faithful love in our lives. And you know, as I look back in my life, I've been blessed to have a few friends like that. Godly friends. Some who have come into my life more recently. Some who I've been blessed to have in my life since the time I was a child. They're still my friends to this day. Friends that spurred me on when I was a teenager. Friends that spurred me on when I was in college at Florida State and showed me what it looked like to follow Jesus when it seemed like everybody else around me wasn't. And I'm thankful for friends like that. Thankful for brothers like that, for godly friends who have been like a Jonathan or a David in my life. And I know for many of you, there's a name or two or three that's that's coming into your mind right now. Someone who's been a friend like that to you. And I want to ask you to respond to this message in in a couple of different ways. And the first thing I want to ask you to do is just a really simple, just very practical thing. I want to ask you, if you have uh, a cell phone in your pocket right now, will you just pull it out and just hold it up for me like this? promise we're not going to turn the lights on and have a concert, all right? But... Some of you probably already had your phones out. You've been playing Candy Crush, and that's okay. You know, forgive you for that. But, but this, you know, I know I beat up on cell phones a few weeks ago, and I talked about parenting in a digital age. But they can be useful as well. And what I want to ask you to do right now is, uh, as God lays one or two or three names on your heart, I want to ask you just actually right now, and you can even turn the sound on. We can hear the dings as these messages go out. But I just want to ask you to, to send a, a message, just a short text to that friend that's coming in your mind right now. And just say, thank you for being that kind of friend in my life. Thank you for being a friend like Jonathan and David. Somebody who has encouraged me. Somebody who has always helped me to keep my eyes on the Lord. Somebody who has been with me when times were good, when times were bad. A loyal, faithful, godly friend. Maybe there's someone right now in this room who would say, you know what, I I can't think of a friend like that. 
And if that's the case, I would just say to, to take the next few minutes and just and pray and just ask God for that. Ask God to, to bring someone into your life who would be that kind of a godly friend for you. Maybe ask God as well that, that he would help you to be that kind of a friend to someone else who needs that kind of a friend. And so take a few minutes and do that. Send a message or two. If you're done with that, pray for that person. And then we'll continue in worship in just a moment. you're finishing up, sending those messages. I just want to ask you to stand with me. As I said, I wanted to ask you to respond to this message in a, in a couple of different ways. And, and the second way is just really to bring us back to, to what this passage is, is mainly about. And that's where do we stand with our king? Where do we stand with our ultimate friend who sticks closer than a brother? Because God is inviting all of us into a covenant through faith, with his son, Jesus Christ, who died for our sins at the cross. But in order for us to do that, in order for us to come into that relationship with God, we have to do like Jonathan did. We have to be willing to lay down our kingdom, take off our robe, choose to seek first his kingdom and accept him, the son of David, the king of kings to be our King and our Lord and our Savior. And you can do that right now by faith in Him. And so as we sing, I want to invite you, if you've never done that, I'm not asking if you've come to church before, if you've read the Bible before, I'm asking you, have you ever surrendered your life to the kingship of Jesus Christ to be your Lord and to be your Savior? And I want to invite you to do that right now. You can come and talk with me or one of the other pastors that will be up here. And we'd love to pray with you about that. Let's sing. 